it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Emily Bazar. Ms. Bazar is a journalist who has covered healthcare for nearly a decade. She is the California news editor for Kaiser Health News, and her column, addressing readers' healthcare questions has appeared in over 25 news outlets. Now, please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Bezar. Thank you very much. Uh, welcome, everyone. It's so wonderful to see you here. Um, I would like to first in briefly introduce our panelists. Uh, at the end is Michelle Bolat. Um, Michelle is a family physician. She is co-founder and executive director of the UCLA International Medical Graduate Program, which she will tell us all about. Uh, and she's also the executive vice chair for the Department of Family Medicine at the UCLA Geffen School of Medicine. Thank you. And to my left, immediate left, is Pilar de la Cruz Simoleon. Pilar has more than 50 years of experience as a nurse in Fresno. Uh, and she was the chief nurse at the Fresno Heart Hospital when she retired as a nurse. Uh, but she's held several other positions, and among them, she was former director of the Central, excuse me, Central California Center for Excellence in Nursing at Fresno State. <laughs> I also, well, we are missing a panelist. Uh, Yusuke Sagawa from UCLA uh, was supposed to be here tonight, but we got an email late morning, early afternoon saying that his wife started having contractions. <laughs> so he is with her now at the hospital, of course. Um, we will miss him, but that's more important. Um, and then I wanted to also mention that in, in addition to my um, professional interest and experience covering healthcare. I do have personal, some personal experience with this. I am the daughter of the two hardest working people on the planet, which I think any child of immigrants probably could legitimately say. Um, and one of them is a nurse who worked for more than 40 years here in the United States as an ICU nurse and a charge nurse, and most of that time just down the street at Methodist uh, Hospital in Arcadia. Um, so, we're all, you know, we're all here to talk about immigrants as healthcare providers. And as it is now, or actually, I think this was in 2015, uh, so the numbers have surely only gone up. Uh, foreign born workers made up 17% of the healthcare workforce. Um, that, translates in, that translated into about 2 million people, 2.1 million people. And as you guys know, this is not just doctors that we're talking about. Um, here are a couple of examples. 24% of dentists were foreign-born, 20% of pharmacists, 11% of podiatrists, 16% of nurses. Does that sound right? 17% um, of medical assistants, and 23% of home health aides. And Pay attention to that last one in particular, because also, as you guys know, the country's largest generation is retiring, and uh, the, the career that is growing, it's one of the five fastest growing occupations in the country, is home health aides. Who are those people gonna be? They're primarily going to be immigrants. And so as the demand for these 
jobs is rising. We are also in a political time when um, legal immigration is going to become more difficult for many of these people uh, who want to come to the United States and work in the healthcare workforce. So we will, we will hit on these things in the discussion. I will promise you I will shut up shortly and um, turn it over to the real experts here. Uh, so I'm going to just start, I'll start with you, Michelle, if you don't mind, and pose you the question that uh, we're all here, brought us here, is how are immigrants changing how healthcare is practiced and delivered? Well, I think the way healthcare has been designed has been one in which we've had different tiers of the way in which we look at healthcare for all of you out in the audience. It may mean, well, my primary care doctor is that first line and, you know, if I hurt my finger, I need to see an orthopedist. So first I want to give that, paint that context because what I want to talk about is the fact that the primary care doctors of, in this country are largely individuals that have come from, that are foreign born. And that is a, a, something to be thinking about because the way in which we are speaking with you as if I were a foreign-born doctor and you're not and you're here, I think these are things that are going to be important for you to, as healthcare consumers to realize how critical these doctors 40, 50 years ago went into areas, rural America, that other doctors didn't go. So I think that the the importance of immigrant physicians to this country when we were not actually graduating enough of these doctors in our own country, they've been a tremendous asset to all of us. I was really surprised. You just mentioned family medicine. Um, I was surprised to know that 30,000, uh, about one-third of California's doctors, not just family doctors, but all doctors, are naturalized American citizens. What is the percentage, do you know, offhand for family doctors? Um, it's that, higher, it sounds like. Yes, and family medicine, you said it's about 33%? Overall, is all doctors. Right, so in terms of international trained physicians, interestingly, international trained physicians for family medicine's about 23%, but when you start to look at areas like nuclear medicine, and you look at other areas where their subspecialty, nephrology, for example, those are areas where they're 40%, even higher in some areas. Cardiology is another good example. I want to ask you about your program, but I want to also turn to Pilar here and ask her which, how she thinks immigrants are changing the practice or how they affect the practice of medicine. Well, you know, uh, a lot of people that come to this country do not trust westernized medicine. They have a fear of it, mm -hmm. and they don't understand it. They are used to their own cultural beliefs. And so consequently, um, when people are in the hospital or getting receiving care, uh, they don't understand what we sometimes, our language, our lingo, of course, mm -hmm. is hard to understand even if you speak English. Um, but these individuals bring those cultural beliefs with them and these practitioners so they understand the people's fears and concerns of, you know, what is it that they believe in? What is it that they, they um, want to, to understand? I can't imagine being a person in a foreign country where they don't speak your language and not being able to understand what's going on. You're fearful, and as a Hispanic nurse, 
I've walked into a patient's room and seen the fear dissipate from their face once you walk in and start speaking to them in their own language. And the Sullivan Commission back in 2004 mm -hmm. stated that the outcomes of patient outcomes were better when they were cared for by individuals of their own culture who understood their practices and understood their beliefs. Um, so that does make a difference. You told me about a really interesting example about a patient who was from the Philippines. Could you tell them about that? Yeah, this has to do with death and dying. Uh, I was taking care of a, a man who died. It was in the middle of winter, and he happened to be a Filipino. And um, every time I was preparing the body to be removed from the hospital, and I had to step out, and I came back in the room, and the window was open. And so I closed it because it was cold. And, you know, I went back to doing my work and I got called out by a doctor. So I went back out and I came, when I came back in the room, the window was open again. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And finally, one of the Filipino nursing assistants who was working with me said, as Filipinos, we believe that when a person dies, you need to let the window, open the window so that the spirit can go out of, from the body. And so that taught me a lesson in terms of you know, cultural beliefs. I often tell nurses, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with a, a 76-year-old Hispanic man who's been eating beans and tortillas all their lives, and now they've had a heart attack, mm -hmm. and you're going to tell them that, well, you can no longer eat beans and tortillas, you might as well forget it because he's not going to follow the diet. But if you explain to him that he can eat refried beans, but better beans than the olla, as we call them, right out of the pot, corn tortillas, then he's better apt to follow that diet because it makes sense to him. So understanding that culture, understanding their needs, understanding their beliefs and their practices makes it much easier for us to be able to care for these individuals. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think this conversation has many, many sides to it, but the two, two, what you have, I think, represented here is you have the provider side and the, the training of the providers, you do that too, Pilar, mm -hmm. but also the patient experience side mm -hmm. is really, really important. And unfortunately, I've also had experience with that with a, a recent diagnosis of my dad with cancer. And it is, it is really interesting when you're on that side of mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, Michelle, I would like you yeah. to explain, if you don't mind, your, the program that you run, because it's fascinating. And I had no idea that so many uh, doctors in the United States were actually trained abroad, so. Great. And one of the issues, the, the reason for the program, and I think that Pilar did an excellent job of describing why culture and language matter in healthcare. And the program that I have running, run with my co-founder, uh, Patrick Dowling at UCLA, it was, put together because there was a gap between the number of the, or percentage of physicians in, this, in California that were able to communicate effectively with Spanish-speaking patients. And the idea was, where are we going to find these doctors that are here legally, that were working as bookbinders at Taco Bell, at all kinds of different places, but they could not work as physicians. So when we started the program, we basically said, how can we do this? We needed to have a university. 
we needed and we had that opportunity with our leadership with Dr. Jerry Levy to put this together. And what this program has done is put 140 to date uh, individuals in a pre-residency program. So I wanna break that down, what I mean. Here in the United States, we go to medical school for four years, but the majority of us have gained a master's degree or, a, a, excuse me, a bachelor's degree or a master's or even a doctorate. And so it's a long road to think about how we can get doctors into the communities, correct? So this program, the UCLA IMG program was built to fast track the way in which we could meet the needs of our 38% of our community that is Spanish uh, speaking and many of one in five having English language uh, uh, proficiency is low. So having said that, this program was built, 140 people have been in a pre-residency, means that we go and they spend time with us at UCLA, and then they have to go into a match, it's an equal playing field, they have to compete against US graduates, and they are then accepted or not, we have a 97% acceptance rate into a family medicine residency program in the state of California. And that's a really important point because they're going into a primary care specialty where most of our U.S. graduates don't go, but our immigrant physicians do go. And because of that need, this program has, if you can imagine, provided access to about 2 million patient visits. And if we were to take our 140 and multiply that by 35 years, we'd be responsible for those doctors for 21 million visits. And that's when you're talking about lack of access to health care, basic health care in this country, that's a big deal. So thank so you for that. These are, these are uh, students from Latin American countries exclusively, yes. is that right? That is correct. So these doctors, in terms of percentage, 45% are from Mexico, about another 20% are from South America, Central America, adding those two together. And then we have uh, from, the, from Cuba, as well as Dominican Republic. So that's where these doctors are coming from. And, they're, and in order for them to come here, they had to be licensed physicians in their country, and then again, take the same exact tests as the US graduates so that the healthcare consumer can be sure that if we were looking at this, one example of, of test taking, that's one thing, but we take a holistic review, and I think any of you that are go to a physician, uh, you would say, I want that person to be able to understand me and to communicate with me. And I think that, to your point, Pilar, even we speak mumbo jumbo sometimes, and we're not being able to communicate as effectively as we should. So culture and language matter. And adding on to what Michelle just said, when you look at doctors and you look at nurses, we have the same problem with minority nurses. There are not enough minority nurses in this state to take care of the population, particularly with Hispanics. Mm -hmm. The number of Hispanics in this state are probably 50%, if not higher, all across the state, except for maybe the northernmost part of the state. But only 8.5% of the nurses in California are Hispanic. So there's a huge gap in the number of nurses versus the number of patients that we have. And so we're trying to have programs that where we invite minority students to become, to, you know, to enter nursing and you say, so why don't more of them want to go into nursing? Well, there's some stereotype 
Uh, I know my father wanted me to be a doctor. He said, I don't want you to be a nurse, be a doctor. And I said, but I don't want to be a doctor. I want to be a nurse. Because <laughs> he was afraid that I was going to be exposed to male patients and, and male genitalia. And, and you know, uh, <laughs> those were his concerns. <laughs> but after being told when I was in high school and my counselor called me and I said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I want to be a nurse. And he shook his head and he said, no. You're poor, you're Mexican, you're gonna be a secretary. And unfortunately, that is, some of that is still going on today. Absolutely. I was put in all secretarial courses my junior year high school. When I graduated, I was given a full ride scholarship to a business school. Um, they sent me to work at a Catholic school as a, as a secretary, and I knew then I was not gonna be a secretary. <laughs> uh, and my father said, why did you give the scholarship back? We don't have any money to send you to school. I said, because I don't want to be a secretary. I mm -hmm. want to be a nurse. And he said, how are you going to do that? I said, I have no idea. I just know I'm going to be a nurse. So 50 years, some odd years later, here I am as a nurse, because you stick with your dreams. So we have to tell these young students, no matter what anybody tells you, you know, stick to your dream. If you want to be something, you can do it. And we need more of these minorities in the hospitals, in healthcare, taking care of patients so that we have better outcomes. Mm -hmm. we have. Can you talk a little bit about what is the percentage of nurses that are foreign born? I mean, it is pretty high, isn't it? But it's a qu I think what you're saying is it's a question of representation within those groups, exactly. right? Um, the one group that has done a great job of um, having enough nurses is the Asian Filipinos particularly. Yeah. Uh, there's probably more uh, Filipino nurses than any other group from, you know, and they, they come from the Philippines, they either go to Canada, then they come to this country. So they are very well represented. Uh, African Americans are not as, you know, they, they have a shortage, but they, they, they projected it out to 2050, I think, and the one group that's still going to be a problem with the gap is Hispanic nurses. The other groups seem to, you know, seem to be uh, e pretty equal to the population, except for Hispanics. So the gap is still very, very wide. It's interesting. I asked my mom uh, a couple days ago, uh, you know, what do you think, mom, about you were an immigrant in the healthcare workforce. Do you think it's immigrants? It's important that immigrants are there. And she gave me kind of a mixed answer. I mean, at one point she said, it doesn't matter so much as long as they do a good job. And then at another point she said, yes, it's incredibly important. One point she brought up that I thought was really good. She, my parents are from Iran, is that um, anytime any patient came into the hospital who was Farsi, spoke Farsi, they would call my mom to translate for mm -hmm. the patient, no matter where mm -hmm. they were, in the ER or anywhere else. So I guess I want to play a little bit of devil's advocate with you guys, and just Absolutely. how important is it that, is it that immigrants are, are well, I, I don't mean, I'm kind of contradicting myself now too, <laughs> um, but, but how important is it that, that we have the representation, proportional representation, versus just having immigrants, versus just having competent people doing the job? Well, as like I already said, the Sullivan Commission, the study they did basically said that the outcomes are better when, when you have people of the same culture caring for those individuals. You understand uh, the issues. I mean, you never want to put an old Armenian lady in the same room with a Turkish lady because you're going to have a battle on your hands. You know, it's, it's going to happen. Uh, so you have to be conscious of that. I know at our hospital, when the Hmong people first came over from... Uh, Southeast Asia, and they came to, a lot of them came to Fresno. They were placed in Fresno. A lot of them went to Minnesota. When these people came over, we had to do a lot of education because they didn't understand 
anything about healthcare. And we didn't have any Hmong nurses. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't know how to use the ER. They were placed in apartments and they didn't know how to use a stove. Nobody mm -hmm. taught them what a stove was. So they were still cooking on the floor in the little hibachi-like things mm -hmm. on the floor. It's lucky they didn't start a fire, you know, burn the place up. But we had to do a lot of training and education. Now, thank goodness, we have more Hmong nurses and Southeast Asian nurses in the workforce. At our hospital, uh, when the mothers had the baby, the, the, the husbands came in with a little pot of soup because their belief is that after delivery, the mothers can only drink warm water and a special soup. So by instituting a cultural competency task force at our hospital, we were able to get the nutrition department to learn how to make that soup so that the fathers didn't have to bring it in anymore. The, the nutrition, the dietary department provided that for the mothers. Mm -hmm. So it's in learning those kind of things that makes it important. When I went to the heart hospital and I was getting ready to open it, I was going through and checking everything to make sure that everything was working. And I was specifically, as I did the TV, I was looking for the Univision, the, the Spanish-speaking station, and I didn't find it. Mm -hmm. So I asked the plant manager, I said, why don't we have Univision here? And he said, I didn't think we'd need it. And I said, are you kidding me? 50% of our patients are going to be Hispanic. Of course we need it. Let's get it on. So when you think right. that way, when you understand that, then you're able to identify those issues and prevent some problems. And that's why it's important. Actually, the food point is really interesting. Do hospitals regularly make separate foods for different populations? I, I mean, think they are doing that more now because of the influence of immigrants and because of those things that they require or they ask for. Hospitals, you know, they're competing for patients, so they want to provide those things if they can. Does that happen at UCLA? I think it happens um, a lot of times when people go in hospital as to your point on the tortillas and the, and the frijoles, we, we loosened up our guidelines a bit and you know we want people to eat something as opposed to being NPO, nothing by mouth. And so I think that that's a, a really important point that's made here. Yeah. You mentioned something, Pilar, that I wanted to, in, in um, Yusuke's absence, I wanted to mention actually some research he had done, he was going to talk about, he studied uh, I think it was just family physicians or internal medicine. Anyway, he, he was compare, comparing outcomes uh, of foreign-trained internal medicine doctors versus U.S.-trained doctors. And he looked at perhaps the most, you could argue, <laughs> the most important outcome, which is mortality, and found that patients who were... Um, there was really there was only a negligible difference between patients who were treated by foreign trained doctors and American trained doctors, and in fact, the difference was that patients treated by the foreign trained doc doctors died a little bit less. So uh, I mean, not each one dying a little bit less. Yeah, overall, you know, <laughs> so, um, you get my point. Um, but it is really interesting what you said about the outcomes mm -hmm. and. Um, I mean, I asked uh, Yusuke, I wish he were here to talk about it, I asked why, why he thought that. And he thought it wasn't so much about cultural um, mm -hmm. uh, connections with the patients, but more about self-selection, that the, 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 the doctors who made it here from those countries were the cream of the crop, essentially. And um, so, um, and, and if you guys were interested, I, get, I sometimes get a little caught up in statistics. I have one here. In California, the top five countries with the most nationals employed as physicians, 
India, number one, Canada, number two, Philippines, number three, China, number four, and Japan, number five. And um, Iran was ninth. I mention that because um, this is another case where politics uh, are, are getting, um, may have an effect because of the Muslim travel ban. Mm -hmm. um, so that is going to limit the number of people from not just Iran, but several other countries that might be practicing here. Mm -hmm. So actually, is it okay if we pivot a little bit to the politics? Um, or did you guys want to talk a little bit more about any of the, no? Let's go to politics a little bit. I know um, how exciting, excited everybody will be to talk about more of that. <laughs> but uh, on Friday, uh, have you guys heard about the, well, have you guys heard about the public charge policy that is going to go, that is going to make it harder for people to get green card or lawful permanent residency, mm -hmm. uh, residency status if they use public programs such as Medicaid and food stamps. And that is going into effect next Tuesday unless a court blocks it. And uh, California's Attorney General and many others have, um, have try, are trying to block it, but there hasn't been a decision yet. And then on Friday, the Trump administration announced um, that Immigrants can't, have you guys heard about this one? Immigrants can't come into the United States unless they can prove that they will somehow be able to pay for insurance, health insurance on their own or get it through a family member or something like this. Um, that is not supposed to affect students so much, but it made me think, well, home health care workers, you know, it may right. not be affect people on student visas, but it could affect people who ultimately may end up in the healthcare workforce. I wanted to ask you guys, what are you, what are you seeing? Some, I think people think about patients all the time right. when you're talking about these kind of immigration policies. What about the healthcare workforce? What are you seeing and hearing? I think that for sure that the number of applicants, for example, to our program has absolutely decreased. And that is uh, of concern because we are looking for this as an alternative pipeline. We call these pipelines in, in our literature. And so Pilar is doing an internal pipeline. We're doing external pipelines. Whatever many pipelines we need to feed to get as many doctors and nurses and pharmacists that are going to look like our communities and be able to speak the language is important. And I think that the other piece to that is the fact that we've got, you know, individuals, when we talk about being able to afford health care, it's not surprising that, let's say, Mexico, most people are paying out of pocket, but the delta of what people are paying out of pocket for their health care in Mexico versus our inflated health care costs here is significant. I can't afford health care if I had to pay out of pocket for everything. Nobody in this room, unless you're really absectionally wealthy. So if you have employer-based insurance, good for you. But if you're coming to this country and you know you might have a job, but you're going to fill a niche, you're going to be that home health care worker because nobody else will do that job. That's a tough, tough job. That's going to be a real disaster for many people, for the health care consumer, for our whole infrastructure. And as I was reading, uh, so many of these people, they don't get employed full time. They get employed as 
part-time mm -hmm. per diem, a temporary, and so consequently they don't get the benefit of benefits. Mm -hmm. They don't have benefits uh, as part of their job, but they're still working very hard. They're still putting in 40, you know, 30 some odd hours, whatever, a week, but they just don't get the benefits. And in fact, sometimes I've seen it happen when they get to a certain point where they work too many hours, mm -hmm. they're let go because they don't want to give them the benefits. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the unfortunate, that's the unfortunate part. But, you know, we do need these people because, as we said, the, you know, the grain of America and so many of us getting older are going to need more health care. And, you know, um, many times people who don't have the insurance wait until the very last minute. They don't seek preventative care. And so by the time they end up in the hospital, they are very, very sick. Nurses used to ask me all the time, how come Mexican families, when someone's in the hospital, everybody becomes a family member? You know, everybody's their family member. And they all want to come and see them. I said, because they believe that that's the last time they're going to see them alive. And so everybody comes. And, and it's because they wait so long, um, either because they're afraid or they don't have the money or the resources, they do die. And so, you know, it kind of comes true that you're in the hospital and you're going to die. So those are some of the factors that impact that. We run a mobile health unit through Fresno State, through the FNP students and the uh, BSN students. And we take it out to the rural areas uh, to see patients. We do free blood pressure, cholesterol, and diabetes screening. And a lot of people don't come because they're afraid. They've, they've, mm -hmm. they've cut back because they're afraid that they're going to be reported, even though we don't do any of that. We, we just do the free testing. But they are afraid, and so we haven't seen as many people mm -hmm. coming out now um, because of the fear of being deported or ICE being there or whatever. So that's the unfortunate part because we found people with blood sugars 600, 800 that had no idea that they even had a problem with their blood sugar and they're not seeking health and they're gonna collapse one day and they're gonna die um, because they, they, you know, they haven't been uh, seeking health care. Are there any programs with nurses like there are with doctors where you train, you would offer to train them but then they'd need, because one thing Michelle, did you mention that in Michelle's program, the doctors that go through it in exchange have to serve underserved communities. What does that mean in California? Where are they going? Absolutely. Yeah, so we have, as I said, we have 140. We have people in the Coachella Valley. We have people in the in San Joaquin and the Central Valley. Inland here Empire. in Los, Ange Los Angeles, the Moreno Valley or the Inland Empire. So we're going in places where there are no doctors. So that's the key. And that's what we mean when we ask, when we talk to our people that are in our program it's not that that's a burden for them because 78% of the people that trained in the area are still working in a federally qualified health center in a community health center. And uh, Zocalo did a great, uh, if you look at Dr. Brenda Green, Brenda Sanchez Green, who's down in San Diego, she's down there because she says she loves it and she wants to be, there's a whole area called border medicine that's the borders, you know, uh, bacteria and viri don't know borders. So in other words, the point is, is that people need to be down there that feel passionate, that are going to take care of the community in ways that they understand when they grew up maybe in Tijuana and then came over to San Diego. So these are, these are important points for our own public health. 
And there are programs for nurses, uh, loan forgiveness programs, mm -hmm. or if they teach, become faculty, they get their uh, loans reduced uh, a significant amount because we need more faculty. In order to have more nurses, we need more faculty. That's a good point. But one thing we haven't touched on that I think is important is that uh, immigrants are able to translate uh, important information to patients. Um, and it's important that they translate in the language they understand. We had an incident of a patient who needed to have an amputation. And they, instead of getting a qualified interpreter, they just found somebody on the floor, said, come over here and interpret. The, the, the worker didn't know how to say amputation. Oh. And so what he told the patient is, you're gonna have surgery on your arm. Oh. Mm. So imagine what the patient felt like when he comes out of surgery and he no longer has an arm oh my God. because the interpretation was incorrect. So those are some issues that, you know. Children are yeah. doing translation, yes. right? Yes. Which is not the well, best thing. Well, it's not, a, it's not acceptable. Yeah. It's a really actually, if you're having any children translate, that's Title VI, you don't want to do that. So please don't do that because it really puts children in a terrible place to be mm -hmm. talking about, so when was your you know, last menstrual period? You know, you want your, your nine-year-old boy to be asking and translating those issues. Exactly, right? and you or can daughter. imagine not knowing the terms and then, oh my God. Um, mm -hmm. What... We're getting close to the Q&A period, so you guys, if you don't have already have some great questions in mind, get them ready. Uh, but So what, do you guys have any bold ideas of how to get more immigrants into positions, and not just doctors and nurses, but hospice and anything? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll start off, Pilaf, if you don't mm -hmm. mind. So I think that the idea here is there is implicit bias. Believe it or not, there's still 24, 25% of the doctors in this country are international medical graduates. But when you line everybody up, who goes first in the queue are not the international medical graduates. So as I think you mentioned, that these people are really, have worked really hard. They're the top of their top and they're coming here they have a passion and desire because it is a journey that people don't want to take imagine yourself i always tell the story if i had to go to china and become a doctor i don't know how i would do it because i'd have to learn a new language a new culture i'd have to take the tests i would flunk so that's all there is to it so these individuals are really quite extraordinary and exceptional that they want to be part of this and take care of our patients. Secondly, to your point on what else can the doctors do, in my specialty family medicine, I'm just very proud to mention that I have eight faculty members. So what does that mean? That means those are role models that says you can do it. Their children won't know what it's like, and I'm sure that if there's any immigrant parents out there, you know the conversations you probably had with your children. But the point is, is that you have individuals that are going to be there in the community. They are going to lift the community as role models and be able to dream of how can we build a, a connection, a connectedness, and to say what's a bold idea is to have bi-directional ways at, let's say, our border. I know that's not a popular theme at the moment, but to be able to have a school on our side and a school on another side and to be able to learn because diversity is what builds the best 
and the brightest amongst all of us. So in my own program at UCLA, our residents, our family medicine residents say, are, are we going to have international medical graduates this year? And the answer has been yes, year after year after year. So I think that they've demonstrated a great, um, you know, they're great resources because the way medicine's practiced outside of the United States is very different. It's extremely different. And your doctors, remember the way we train is different as well, right? These individuals decided when they got out of high school, they spent six years learning how to be a doctor, right? That's the difference around the world compared to what we do. And in 2011, I went down to Chula Vista to take over a school, uh, United States University, um, that served primarily minority students. And it was in trouble with the Board of Registered Nursing. They were getting ready to close it. Mm -hmm. And we had a lot of foreign students that came to that school. And what we had was a lot of um, physicians who were physicians in uh, Mexico, but hadn't been able to pass the test here. So rather than lose them altogether, they went into our nurse practitioner program, mm -hmm. and they were able to become nurse practitioners. So that was a way of saving those students for, to, you know, to expand the healthcare. Uh, and they brought a lot of good qualities with them as they completed their program. Thank you both. I think it's time for questions. My name is Ilan Shapiro. I'm a physician from Mexico, actually. And uh, thank you for both for actually showing the both sides and actually the third side of uh, being foreign and uh, understanding a different language and a different thing. My question is, right now with all the public and media things that we're having on top, on, on, on top of everything, public charge, the census, how can we involve you know, us as physicians, nurses, as healthcare providers, as a general group, and uh, Im improve and empower our patients to do the same thing, to actually voice out their, their concerns and, and say, you know what, you know, we want change, we, we want something better. One of the things that we started, um, was, was particularly for nurses, but it can be physicians as well, but we started a minority nursing conference in Fresno. And when I was down in San Diego, I did it in San Diego. And we've now done it in the Bay Area. So we're trying to do it across California, where we bring people together and come up with ideas of how do we get more minorities into healthcare. So I think it would be important for physicians to get involved in those kind of activities to help support, not just for nurses, but for physicians and radiologists and rad techs and you know, everything in, in healthcare. That's just one idea. And I think to your point, one of the things that you may have experienced this yourself, where if I make it, not necessarily going to make it as easy for the person behind me. The idea that it's really that community that has to get together and decide as a group of international physicians to say, this is important. And there's a great physician, and I will not get his name right. He he's, uh, was a DACA student from Thailand. And what he did is he said, you know, I feel so passionate about this whole thing where I grew up here, and I need and want to take care. My immigrant parents couldn't give me all of these things that others, maybe other students were able to do. Yet he was able to now form a group, and he's going to be testifying in Washington to talk about this is important. And he's not going to just talk about DACA, but he's also talking about the whole issue of diversity and that complex dis and crucial discussion that really has to take place in this country. So I hope 
I answered your question somewhat. Um, hi, my name is uh, Victoria Krauss. I work at Altamed um, Healthcare Services um, in grants. And uh, my question is, um, what are your thoughts on universal healthcare coverage? And actually, I have one more to that, too. I, I think it's sort of embedded. Um, what are your thoughts on, uh, w w with universal healthcare coverage, um, on equitable pay, livable wages for, like, home um, health aides and sort of like the, the folks that get paid the least in the healthcare workforce? That's a big question. <laughs> well, I can tell you, I, and now I'm speaking for myself, not for the University of California. Um, I, I, am, um, I think that having equitable health care is extremely important. I think the Obama administration made great strides, and I think that there were things left undone. I think it's going to be very difficult, as it was in the Clinton era, to talk about universal health care. Um, and there are a lot of interests to keep us from having that. And I think yet at the same time, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services is starting to pull things together in a way that I think is going to make uh, health care uh, at least open our eyes as consumers, and I look to the millennials to help us with that, because us baby boomers, we just want to keep on getting what we get and maybe not change it up. So I think that to answer that question, and then you had a second part to that question. So I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not hedging, I'm just saying I don't think we're, we're ready for that at this point, and I, I'm, I don't think that the country's quite there yet. So, and you had a second part to your question? Absolutely, and to your, I think that was a, a very important point. When, when any of us in this room said, would have to be home and have someone take care of our loved one or ourselves, the question on the table is, how much per hour are you willing to pay that person? How much can you pay? And all of a sudden, you're going to realize you don't have enough money and there isn't a system in place. So I would address the healthcare infrastructure first, and then I would talk about the the, the payment schema that comes second. And I, I believe that healthcare is a right, not a privilege. Uh, I believe that, but I also believe that this country has to look at turning it around from being a sickness system mm -hmm. to one of wellness. And we have to do more with preventative medicine mm -hmm. in order to get people healthier. Uh, you know, it's, it was a shame that we wouldn't give mothers uh, prenatal pills because they didn't have insurance or they were, you know, immigrants. And, but yet we still paid all millions of dollars to take care of that pre, pre, preemie baby in the uh, NICU. It doesn't make any sense to me when we could prevent that by just simply providing prenatal vitamins for, for people. So I think we have to look at preventative medicine as being one of those things that we have to move towards and change the model around so that the pyramid changes and we'll focus more on preventative than, than sickness care. And that leads to the outpatient centers and you know, out, we need more outpatient centers to be able to handle that. But I also believe that you know, it should be equal pay for these individuals. I broke my arm a year ago and I couldn't, I fell and broken and I couldn't do anything. And I'm right-handed and I broke my right arm. And if it hadn't have been for those home health care aides, they came in and gave me a shower, helped me to wash my hair, mm -hmm. to do those basic things that I could no longer do for myself. And I was living by myself then. I don't know what I would have done. 
So those people are important. But sometimes, just like in, you know, I tell hospitals all the time, I sit on the board of a hospital, and the people that are up front taking all the information, you know, when the admitting clerks, those are the people that we seem to pay the least to, when in actuality, we should be making sure that they get paid good bucks because they have to get all that information and all that information right so you can do the billing and you get paid. So sometimes we're penny wise and pound foolish. Hi, my name's Arnold Schur. Thank you guys for having this talk. Um, so my question is regarding diversity in medical professions. And for you guys, if you guys could also just discuss the role of standardized testing in GPAs and the, uh, the barriers that low-income communities and like communities of colors face when attempting to um, apply for like medical professions and everything like that, taking into consideration that like schools such as UCLA, uh, as far as the School of Medicine at least, have raised their bar for MCATs and GPAs? I can take that and I'll, ta I'll preface it by saying that, again, I'm not gonna be speaking on behalf of the University of California, but I will, I will say this, that the conversations that you have around your dinner table make a difference. Even if you have a dinner table, if mom's home, if you're coming from a place where you're ducking bullets because the community is so tough. There is something called a holistic review that I think we need to be thinking about. And we need to be looking at the value that individuals from communities that are not like a majority that may have had the opportunity to travel, to uh, get these advanced degrees. I think that one thing I will say for uh, many of us, now I'll speak on behalf of that university, is that we are looking at a much more holistic review. And the fact that we have people of color on our community uh, or on our uh, boards to look at admissions, I think that's important. But we have a long way to go everywhere in this country because as I mentioned earlier, there is an implicit bias that occurs and that's just, we, that's why they have, we have to have education about implicit bias because we don't understand it ourselves that we are being biased. So we have to do a better job. And I think that in terms of GPA and test scores, those are proxies, you know, for probably 30 years now, 20 at least, you know, I've heard that the uh, USMLE is gonna go away or it's gonna become merged or, you're, or the MCATs are gonna change. So I haven't seen that happen yet, but I will say one thing, there have been more programs available than they've had in the past. And if you feel passionate find that mentor, find someone, and get, some, get someone to help you. Because I can tell you with my, with my students, I've seen people come from the very bottom and they've pulled themselves up, so it's not impossible. There's a reception afterward in case you want to talk to anybody. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Carolina. Um, I really appreciated you bringing up the question about public charge, because I think that speaks to the time that we're in. Uh, mm -hmm. Right now, immigrant communities are facing a lot of barriers to their healthcare. Um, and when we think about the impact of, um, you know, like administrative at the federal level challenges, whether it's public charge or thinking about like how ICE raids might be affecting mental health of immigrant communities. Yeah. Um, I really do believe that being in the industry really gives you that first look and insight into like what that challenge looks like. So my question was really more about, do you identify any challenges or gaps in terms of outreach to immigrant communities when it comes to their mental health? Because 
Like how can we really help fight that stigma that is often present of really taking care of yourself? I think mental health has been a, it's a huge issue, I know, in the Central Valley and in many parts of the state. It's, it, there's a real need there. I think when President Reagan closed all the, or many of the mental health programs down, the hospitals were left to, to handle the load and, and, and were not doing a good enough job to help people, to really help identify what is the problem. And so consequently, we have a lot of people living on the street. We have a lot of people that you know, homeless, that don't have the, the services uh, available to them. And it's something that needs to be addressed. I'm happy to say that it's being addressed more now than, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, we're seeing more uh, special programs for uh, psychiatric nurse practitioners. We're seeing uh, in the Valley, for instance, uh, the Children's Hospital is gonna open up a big uh, mental health facility uh, for not only kids, but you know, adults as well. And so to be able to provide more services, but it's a big need, mental health is a big need in terms of health care. I, I, let me add to that one real quick. One of the reporters that I work with uh, wrote a story earlier this year about, I think, I think you have to deal with culture, cultural barriers, mm -hmm. of course, with this. And uh, she wrote a great story earlier this year about Asian Community Services, which is a big clinic in mm -hmm. Northern California in mm -hmm. Oakland, primarily yeah. caters to um, Asian immigrants. And they have people coming in for their dental visits but they will ask them during the dental visits some questions about their mental health. And they have a psych psychologist or a therapist nearby, and if they hear something, this is a new program, if they hear something that is of concern, they'll say, you know, we just have somebody down the hall, why don't you go talk to them? And it's not the stigma of having a mental health appointment or going mm -hmm. to see a psychiatrist. or It's really a creative program, it seems to, so I'm just wondering if there just need to be creative ways like that with individual communities to try to reach out to them. Yeah. Hi, I'm Dave Gutman, and I had a relative who was the first licensed acupuncturist in the U.S., and she had gone to jail several times for practicing medicine without a license. Now, are there other practices that you're aware of that are coming from other countries that would possibly become mainstream if we were open to having uh, something other than Western medicine as part of our uh, that the immigrants could bring us. I think that's a that's an that so let me make sure I want to frame the question properly. You that the besides the allopathic doctors, patients uh, or, or pa uh, doctors that are coming to this country and practicing Western medicine, your question is, what about an acupuncturist? What about somebody that does other types of in? Uh, I never pronounce it right, but anyway, where you are going to see that is gonna be, you would need, like I said, for the way we set up our program, there are programs for acupuncturists, but the question is the boards and being able to voice your concerns that there is a board for acupuncturists at the state of California and being able to discuss the needs of the communities and to be able to bring those other alternative medica med appropriate medications or ways in which you practice to, to, the, to the states. Because I will tell you that East-West medicine in our hospitals is being practiced right now. So when someone has pain, they might have an acupuncturist or they might have a hot stone massage. So these things are really important and 
different modalities are important. So thanks for raising that question. I think it's a very important one. I think uh, medicine is more um, open to alternative types of therapies now than they were 10 years ago, even Absolutely. 10 years ago, because they've seen how it can help. Um, I have to tell you a personal story is when my, my first child was a year old, I was at the pediatrician's office every week, it seemed like, with something. And my father said to me, bring, that, bring him over to my house. I'm going to cure him from susto, which is fright. Uh -huh. I thought, okay, here I'm a nurse, and I look at the scientific model, and I'm going to take him over there, and my father's going to you know, do this, perform this uh, form of therapy to cure him from fright. I thought, okay, I'll play with you, but I'll be at, I'm sure I'll be at the pediatrics office in another week or so. So I took him over, my father did the ritual, pray, the, the broom sweeping out the uh -huh. evil spirits. I didn't go back to the pediatrician for a year. I thought, wow, <laughs> this does work, you know? That's fantastic. So, I mean, even as, as a nurse, you realize that some of these things, you know, there's belief and there's a reason why people believe in them. Absolutely. So I'm happy to see that alternative medicine is being more acceptable now. Hi, my name is Judy Belk and I'm the president of the California Wellness Foundation. We are delighted to be sponsoring the program tonight. Two questions. One, I'm wondering if, Flora, maybe you could talk about how you see promotoras fitting in to um, this discussion and you might want to explain um, uh, that for folks who may not know. And then second, um, one issue that I've been thinking a lot about in this environment that's been so divisive about um, you know, who belongs in this country and the contributions mm -hmm. is what talking points would you give to those who say, we should be focusing on um, providing, you know, medical educational opportunities for Americans, uh, focusing on um, promoting that with, uh, and not be focusing so much on bringing others um, in the country. It's an issue that I think, in this divisive, you know, environment, that we need to have some talking points. I think promotoras are excellent ways of helping educate the public. Can you explain what they are? Promotoras are people, that they're not, they don't have a necessarily a healthcare background, but they're people in the community that are interested in healthcare, have an interest in helping people, and that people look to as leaders in that particular uh, community or particular area. And so when they can provide information about so people will come, and they're not afraid to go to their homes, because they usually do it in their home or at a community center. So people will come and hear the information that they have to offer. So I think with our, you know, I think they play a very important role and more so in the future. As for your second question, uh, what would, you know, what would I say? I, I think basically everybody has a right to receive the kind of care you know, that they need. Um, as a nurse, that's you know kind of how I, I feel, and I think we have a responsibility to be able to give them what we can and what they need, but they also have to help themselves. They have to be willing to say, okay, what can I do for myself to help myself? How can I how can I take better care of myself? How can I do the things that I need to do from my perspective uh, to to help? So it's it's got to go both ways. I don't know if that answered your question or not, but. I would say that we are a country of immigrants. We are 
we are, um, and I think that gets sometimes lost, that uh, we have some of the fastest growing immigrant populations coming from Asia. Um, we have, uh, I think, what is it, 30 some percent that are of our immigrants are from Mexico. These are individuals that have made significant contributions um, to many sectors. And so I think that that rhetoric is coming back and just simply saying, you know, these are Americans too, and they're here to provide service, and they do provide service. And so I think that when we talk about this, it's not to get into that angry debate, but to simply state that we are diversifying because, as Sandra Day O'Connor said, diversity makes us better. It builds us as better a fabric of this country. So one thing, one other thing I want to say is, in the valley, they one day, you know, it's a complaint about they're taking our jobs, they're taking our jobs. So one day they got a they got a bus, and they offered it to people to go out and work in the fields. They say we'll take <laughs> you out to the fields to work. If you think you know that you don't have a job, we'll take you there. You know how many people got on that bus? Zero. That's okay. that's the argument with the home health aides, right? Right. Yeah. Precisely. Who wants to do that? Job? Do that. Well, thank you all very much. We had a uh, really great conversation. Thank you. Um, thank you. So that's about all we have time for, and we're about to go to the reception. Um, but before we close, just on behalf of Sokolo Public Square, I wanted to give another huge thank you to our partners, the California Wellness Foundation, for helping us with this. Any lingering questions, please uh, bring them to the reception with you. We'll be right back there. Okay. Um, but before we leave, let's have another huge round of applause for our featured panelists. Thank you. <laughs>